Before we begin today's episode, I want to take a moment to point out two mistakes I made in the previous episode, the Voyager probes. The first one came at the 2.30 minute mark. I accidentally referred to Voyager's rings instead of Jupiter's rings. The second mistake I made was at the 10.43 minute mark when I referred to the year 2020. The data I provided was for April of 2021. Please excuse these mistakes as I strive to do better in the future. Lastly, I've released this podcast on a bi-weekly basis. However, due to scheduling conflicts, there will not be an episode on May 1st. Regular programming will continue after that date. Now, without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. In 1938, trombonist Glenn Miller first assembled his incredibly popular Glenn Miller Orchestra and for four years, they were considered one of the best big bands in America. In 1942, at the height of their popularity, Miller disbanded his orchestra, volunteering his services to the Army. For two years, he led the Army Air Force Band, performing for Allied troops in the European theater. On a foggy afternoon in December 1944, Miller boarded a small aircraft in England destined for Paris. Glenn Miller, and the aircraft carrying him were never seen again. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and here's 10 minutes about the life and disappearance of Glenn Miller. Born Alton Miller on March 1, 1904, in Clarinda, Iowa, Miller disliked his first name. Hating how his mother pronounced his given name as Alton, he decided to go by his middle name, Glenn. As a child, he moved around a lot, spending time in Missouri and Nebraska before settling in Colorado in 1918. His love for music began at an early age, as he managed to purchase a shabby old trombone. Miller fondly remembered that first horn. That old slip horn had one foot in trombone heaven, but oh boy how I loved it. Slept with it right beside me every night, and when I went to school, I hid it. It was my first love. In high school, Glenn was enamored with the trombone, joining his high school band while posting subpar marks in most subjects save for math and Latin. On the day of his high school graduation, he skipped it, opting instead to travel to Wyoming for a music gig. After a few years of bouncing around with several bands, Glenn enrolled at the University of Colorado in Boulder in 1923. He failed most of his classes and eventually dropped out of college to focus on his music career. After several years, he wound up in Los Angeles, where he was hired by drummer Ben Pollock to play in his popular orchestra. It was in Pollock's band that Miller met and roomed with a future titan of jazz, clarinetist Benny Goodman, who would later be known by many as the King of Swing. As a member of Pollock's band, Miller seized the opportunity to produce several arrangements for the group. In March of 1928, he followed Ben Pollock to New York, whose band would continue to have success on the East Coast. Over the years, Glenn had maintained a long-distance friendship with Helen Berger, a woman whom he had met and courted while at college. He would convince her to come to New York, and by October, the two were married. For the next four years, Miller spent time working for recording studios and on Broadway. He played the trombone and arranged some music for several different people, including George Gershwin. 
1934, Miller joined the famed Dorsey Brothers Band, where he served as the musical director. He would leave shortly thereafter, quickly tiring of the two brothers, Jimmy and Tommy's, fighting. While the brothers would split up to form their own bands the following year, Glenn was hired to recruit musicians for Ray Noble's orchestra. It was at this stage in his career that Miller began to study under the tutelage of Dr. Joseph Schillinger, a renowned music theorist and composer. He taught Miller a method of composing based on mathematics. His time with the professor furthered his development as a legitimate composer and arranger. Miller formed his first orchestra under his own name in February of 1937. However, he was unhappy with his booking agency, who had failed to gain him radio airtime and proper venue bookings. Glenn's first band was a financial disaster. It's believed he lost $30,000 over the course of its tenure. After almost a year together, Miller would give the band members their final notices on New Year's Eve of 1937. The following year, the big band era was in full swing. Two of Miller's friends and former bandmates, Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman, were currently at the height of their popularity. Miller didn't wait long before attempting to form another band, and in March, the Glenn Miller Orchestra was formed. It was full of fresh new faces, as well as several musicians Glenn brought back from his original group. To make this band a success, Miller no longer tolerated some of the inappropriate behavior he abided last time. Everyone had to be well-mannered and committed to the band. Forming the group's sound, Miller chose to highlight his reed section, specifically leading with the clarinets. The orchestra quickly began to gain notoriety. In 1939, the band spent three months performing at the Glen Island Casino in New York. By the end of the engagement, the band's popularity spread like wildfire across the country. George Simon, friend and former drummer of Miller's first band, recalled hearing the new group play. I remember hearing a broadcast and being impressed by the fact that the rhythm section, which had not been good, was sounding great. I phoned Glenn to ask why, and he told me that Maurice Pertil had joined the band on drums. It made a difference because the band had had such bad drummers. When Glenn put up with me as the drummer in his first band, I knew he didn't know much about drumming. Between 1939 and 1942, the Glenn Miller Orchestra was one of, if not the most popular swing bands in America, as its namesake was one of the most popular band leaders in the country. While it was active, the orchestra had 35 singles reach the top 10 of the Billboard charts seven of which would reach the number one spot, including Chattanooga Choo Choo, which would sell 1.2 million copies by February of 1942. Additionally, another song, In the Mood, would easily become Miller's most well-known hit, having been used in countless films since its release. When America entered what President Franklin D. Roosevelt termed the Second World War in late 1941, Glenn Miller decided the best way to help his country was to join the armed forces. Yet, at 38 years old, he was too old to be drafted. On June 20th, 1942, Miller submitted an application to the Navy for a commission. They promptly rejected his request. Two months later, he would send a letter to the Army offering them his services. The letter was warmly received. On October 7th, 1942, 
Captain Glenn Miller reported for duty. He disbanded his civilian band, leaving behind a lucrative career as a band leader and abruptly ending one of the most popular bands not only of the era, but of the century. He was soon transferred to what was then known as the Army Air Forces, the AAF, where he would form the Army Air Force Orchestra. To find members for the AAF band, Miller was able to recruit practically anyone he desired into the orchestra, including several former members of his civilian band. As an interesting side note, had Frank Sinatra been drafted, it was arranged that he would have joined Miller's AAF orchestra. In addition to performances across the U.S., the AAF band also performed on the radio program I Sustain the Wings. But Miller was hardly content to stay put, desiring to move the AAF band overseas to perform for the troops in Britain. Coincidentally, around the same time, on May 24th of 1944, the Supreme Allied Commander, General Dwight Eisenhower, sent a letter requesting Glenn Miller and his band be sent to the UK to work on a radio program, the Allied Expeditionary Forces Program, or rather the AEFP, that he had commissioned for the Allied troops as they furthered their push against Nazi Germany moving into continental Europe. The AAF reluctantly agreed to Eisenhower's request, while Miller was eager for the opportunity. On June 10th, Miller flew to England. His more than 60 band members would follow him shortly after, boarding the Queen Mary for a six-day trip. When they landed at Firth of Clyde, Scotland, Miller was there to greet them. The band began to record programming for the AEFP as well as the BBC. Though the band was retitled the American Band of the AEF, it was commonly called Glenn Miller's Army Air Force Band. Miller and his band toured across England, performing at military bases across the country, who welcomed them warmly. Of their work, Lieutenant General Jimmy Doolittle stated, Next to a letter from home, Captain Miller, your organization is the greatest morale booster in the European theater of operations. The band itself was so popular in England that when the BBC pulled Miller's music from their radio programs due to his refusal to play at one consistent volume, there was stark public outrage. While the AEFP had still been playing Miller's music, the BBC was quick to reverse their ban. In August, the Allies would recapture Paris. Miller, excited to get to continental Europe, requested that his band be sent there to play for the troops in France. Before they could leave England, however, the BBC, afraid that the band's broadcasts in Paris wouldn't get back to the UK, required Miller and the AAF band to record six weeks' worth of programming between November 20th and December 12th. By this point in the war, with Nazi Germany in retreat, there was speculation that the band would return to the States in early 1945 before being sent to the Pacific Theater. On a personal note, Miller was looking forward to returning to his civilian life. The adoption of his and Helen's second child had been completed, and Glenn was excited to come home and meet her. With their first performance in Paris scheduled for Christmas Day, there were final arrangements that needed to be completed in anticipation for the band's arrival. The recently promoted Major Glenn Miller was ordered to fly there a few days ahead of the band to finalize preparations. 
The weather on December 13th and 14th was dreadful, leading to the cancellation of regularly scheduled flights, putting Miller in a bind. An acquaintance of Miller's, Lieutenant Colonel Norman Basil, offered Miller a seat on a small aircraft he was flying to Paris on the 15th. Miller accepted the offer. Though weather conditions still remained poor, with fog restricting visibility, the plane carrying Miller departed England at 1.55 p.m. on December the 15th, 1944. That aircraft and its three occupants were never seen again. When the rest of the band arrived in Paris on the 18th, they were surprised and confused when Glenn Miller didn't meet them at the airport. The shocking truth was that Miller's plane never arrived in Paris, though a report had been filed for a missing aircraft because Miller never cleared his flight with the proper officials, he wasn't on the flight's manifest. Thus, it was days until anyone realized the awful truth. Glenn Miller was missing. News of Miller's disappearance was kept secret until Christmas Eve, when it was announced to the world that the beloved band leader was lost. Despite his absence, his band performed their scheduled Christmas Day event. Miller's band would remain in the European theater until August of 1945. They would continue to perform for the troops, raising morale everywhere they went. Perhaps their most noteworthy performance was when they played in front of 10,000 American soldiers at the very stadium in Nuremberg where Hitler had made countless blistering speeches. In November of 1945, Glenn Miller's Army Air Force Band made its final appearance, performing in front of President Harry Truman and General Eisenhower at a dinner hosted by the National Press Club. Though he was gone, Miller was not forgotten. The night's host, Eddie Cantor, would praise Miller, saying in part, Glenn Miller was a very wonderful man who led a very wonderful band. As a civilian, he led an orchestra that was the number one band in America. He could have stayed and made himself a lot more money. He chose not to. He was an extremely patriotic man and felt an intense obligation to his country that had gone into war. He disbanded his great orchestra and formed an even greater one. Still, he could have remained here in America. Again, he chose not to. Instead, he chose to take himself and his orchestra overseas to where he felt he could do the most good for our fighting men. What a tremendous morale-building job he and his men did over there. Now this great band is back here with us this evening, but without its most important member, Major Glenn Miller himself. For as we all know too well, he made the supreme sacrifice for his country. He will never be forgotten, for always we will have the sound of the great music that he created. There are hundreds of wild theories explaining Miller's disappearance. However, the most likely cause was mechanical failure with the aircraft. Glenn Miller was 40 years old when he went missing. He left behind a legacy like no other, he was loved by those who knew him and by the countless fans that knew his music. He was survived by his wife Helen and their two children, Stephen and Joni. Thank you for listening. For 10 Minutes About, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly. And that's all I've got to say about Glenn Miller. <laughs>